Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 106. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on February 20th, President's Day, 2023, in Austin, Texas. Lest you don't already know, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. We believe there's dignity in our national story, along with tragedy, triumph, brilliance, hypocrisy, magnificence, depravity, corruption, venality, inspiration, oppression, genius, defeat, and glory. So before we get to the main topic of the episode, a couple of items are in order. One is, I'm recording this in an unusual way, standing up in my office at like five in the morning because I have to travel out to California for the next few days and all the rest of it. So if I don't get it done now, it's not going to happen for a while. Also, in the last episode, I puzzled over a reference to John Winthrop carrying a plant called a snakeweed, which nearly as I could tell came from the American West. Eric from Ann Arbor, one of our most long-standing and attentive listeners, suggested that Winthrop's plant was probably Prenanthes serpentaria, otherwise known as cankerweed lion's foot snakeweed, earth gall, and butterweed. It is indigenous to much of the eastern United States, including Massachusetts, and was apparently used in a poultice as an antidote for snake bite. Thank you, Eric. The other item is to remind you all that if you want to buy any of the books I mention on the podcast, a great way to do that is to go to the relevant episode post on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, and click through the Amazon link. I get a teeny-weeny tip on anything you buy by clicking through those links, including the book in question. And that's all very appreciated and stuff. But more importantly, I get to see aggregated data about at least some of the books purchased on my recommendation, which is nice to be able to tell people. Okay, so on to the history part. I have a high school classmate who's enamored of the old Apple computer advertisement known as the crazy ones, to the point that he's been attaching it to his emails of late. It was the cornerstone piece of Apple's old Think Different campaign, which, it should be said, is not something one would expect to hear from a Silicon Valley tech company in the mid-2020s. Anyway, the ad, link in the show notes, voices over some actually pretty great text, while images of such people as Albert Einstein, Martin Luther King, Muhammad Ali, Buckminster Fuller, Ted Turner, a few women I didn't recognize, among others, flash past. The good part of the narrated text is as follows. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them, because they change things. They push the human race forward. Not exactly a pandemic-era sentiment, but there you have it. 
Anyway, if Americans knew our early history a bit better, Roger Williams ought to have been on Apple Computer's list. This is the first of several non-consecutive episodes about Roger Williams, whom we have teased a few times already. Williams was one of early New England's immensely consequential figures, perhaps in the long run more so than either William Bradford or John Winthrop. While the intellectual and civil contributions of Williams were legion, there are four startlingly modern things that he essentially invented. First, Williams argued that requiring people to attend church and worship in a particular way, a practice the English called conformity and essentially a universal obligation in Christian Europe for centuries, was an offense against God. Williams thought that people must be free to find their own faith and follow their own beliefs. In a universally religious time, this amounted to a wholesale reconsideration of the proper relation, as John Barry framed it, between a free individual and the state. Second, Williams challenged the settled relationship between the church, man's manifestation of God on this earth, and the state. He concluded that they should be entirely separate, an idea that most Americans today take as a given. Third, Williams founded the new colony of Rhode Island, the first political entity anywhere in the world, at least as far as I can determine, dedicated to the proposition of religious freedom and liberty of conscience. Finally, Williams learned the local Algonquin language and studied the indigenous peoples of New England with a compassion and intellectual honesty that was, for its time, very unusual and arguably unprecedented. As modern as all these innovations were eventually understood to be, Williams arrived at them by a means of reasoning from Scripture that's decidedly early modern or even pre-modern, almost rabbinical, and very difficult to understand for most secular Americans today. TBH, as all you young people would say, I've been struggling with it myself for weeks, and will try to render it as clearly as I can in this episode. Anyway, as we shall see, Williams started from the postulates of Puritanism and then followed his reasoning fearlessly. It took him to some shocking places, and yet many people might have come to similar conclusions. Without something more, we would not have heard of them. Roger Williams had that something more. Williams combined his fearless reasoning with a persistent and unqualified commitment to the truth as he saw it, a dogged willingness to assert and defend his principles, no matter how unpopular they were or how negative the consequences for Williams. He also had a kindly, charming, and charismatic personality that mostly diffused the hostility that dissidents usually provoke in powerful establishment types. To understand the very consequential intellectual journey of Roger Williams, we need to spend some time with Puritanism. We've talked about some of this, that Puritanism was Calvinist in its roots, that Puritans struggled to reconcile themselves with traditional papist liturgy of the Church of England, and that leading Puritans allied themselves with parliamentarians in the struggle to constrain and define the limits of royal power. 
we have not spent much time on Puritan theology, which we have to do in order to understand how Roger Williams invented liberty of conscience and separation of church and state, among other things. We also need it to understand the story of the other famous dissident of the era, Anne Hutchinson, who we will discuss as soon as my muse gets around to it. Fortunately, it's less boring than it sounds. To do this, I'm going to assume that you, our beloved family of listeners, is at least passingly familiar with basic Judeo-Christian stories. David Hackett Fisher, in the early pages of Albion Seed, reduces Puritanism to five big concepts. Depravity, covenant, election, grace, and love. Since Fisher writes better than I would if I lived another lifetime, let's quote him. First was the idea of depravity, which to Calvinists meant the total corruption of natural man as a consequence of Adam's original sin. The Puritans believed that evil was a palpable presence in the world and that the universe was a scene of cosmic struggle between darkness and light. They lived in an age of atrocities without equal until the 20th century. But no evil ever surprised them or threatened to undermine their faith. One historian remarks that it was impossible to conceive of a disillusioned Puritan. They believed as an article of faith that there was no horror which mortal man was incapable of committing. The dark thread of this doctrine ran through the fabric of New England's culture for many generations. The second idea was that of the covenant. The Puritans founded this belief on the book of Genesis, where God made an agreement with Abraham, offering salvation with no preconditions but many obligations. This idea of a covenant had not been prominent in the thinking of Luther or Calvin, but it became a principle of high importance to English Puritans, They thought of their relationship with God and one another as a web of contracts. A third idea was the Calvinist doctrine of election, which held that only a chosen few were admitted to the covenant. One of Calvinism's five points was the doctrine of limited atonement, which taught that Christ died only for the elect, not for all humanity. The iron of this Calvinistic creed entered deep into the soul of New England. A fourth idea was grace, a motion of the heart, which was God's gift to the elect and the instrument of their salvation. Much Puritan theology and most of the five points of Calvinism were an attempt to define the properties of grace, which was held to be unconditional, irresistible, and inexorable. They thought that it came to each of them directly, and once given would never be taken away. Grace was not merely an idea, but an emotion, which has been defined as a feeling of ecstatic intimacy with the divine. It gave the Puritans a soaring sense of spiritual freedom, which they called soul liberty. A fifth idea, often lost in our image of Puritanism, was love. Their theology made no sense without divine love, for they believed that natural man was so unworthy that salvation came only from God's infinite love and mercy. Fortunately, the Puritans believed that they were bound to love one another in a godly way. One leader told them that they should 
look upon themselves as being bound up in one bundle of love and count themselves obliged in very close and strong bonds to be serviceable to one another. This Puritan love was a version of the Christian caritas in which people were asked to lovingly give as well as lovingly take admonitions. It was a vital principle in their thought. Back to me. These ideas, which were deeply complex, imposed on the Puritans, in Fisher's words, a set of insoluble logic problems about how to reconcile human responsibility with God's omnipotence. The attempt to resolve these logic problems made the Puritans of the 17th century deeply committed moralists. The New English Puritans were far and away the most morally literate and philosophical civil society that this country has ever known. For reasons that will become apparent, it was the understood duty of every Puritan to consider matters of right and wrong at a depth that would astonish even most religious Americans today. And nobody worked harder at it or paid a higher price than the dissidents of New England. Now, at the great risk of oversimplifying, I'm going to drill in on a couple of these Puritan ideas, starting with covenants and how they affected grace. As usual, if any of you learned listeners believe that I've gotten something wrong or emphasized it the wrong way, please send me a note and I'll try to set the record straight, either in an episode or a blog post. At a high level, the Puritan goal was the reconciliation of God's omnipotence and love on the one hand and unremitting human frailty on the other. Fortunately, I'm aided in this by a great passage from Edmund Morgan in his book on Roger Williams, quote, God had made a covenant of works with Adam, offering Adam salvation in return for perfect obedience. But Adam broke the covenant and left his posterity unable to obey and deprived of eternal life. God then made another covenant, the covenant of grace, with Abraham and his seed, promising salvation in return for faith. Abraham's seed was the people of Israel, and so God had a covenant with Israel. He also made a covenant of redemption with Christ, and after Christ fulfilled that covenant, God offered the covenant of grace to all who attained faith. The covenant of grace, by which alone a man could be saved, was not really within the grasp of human effort. The faith which it demanded was the product of that process of conversion— in which a man could act only by the aid of the Holy Spirit. Back to me. Several important consequences flow from this. At the risk of being reductionist, the first idea was that Adam's failure had ended the possibility of salvation through good works. In the Puritan view, one could not get to heaven merely by following God's law. God would either bestow grace or he would not, and in principle, there was nothing that any one person could do about it. The idea that good works could plow the road at the pearly gates, maybe mixing a metaphor, was, in the Puritan theology, one of the great shortcomings of Catholicism, and the implications were severe. If the clergy said such things to their flock, they were deceiving them, offering the promise of salvation on a fraud. To the extent that non-Puritan clergy in the Church of England promoted a covenant of works, 
They were misrepresenting God's promise and condemning the millions who believed them to hell. Now back to Morgan, who frames the Puritan response, quote, At the root of the difference between Puritans and other Englishmen was a deeper sense among Puritans of the great obstacle that lay between man and salvation. The Puritans insisted that man must keep the obstacle in full view and recognize that no saint or angel, no church or priest or bishop could carry him over it, nor could his own efforts, with or without their assistance. The obstacle was man's depravity, unavoidably inherited from his first ancestor. The Puritan Roger Williams learned that he'd been born hopelessly, desperately evil, and that only God's merciful saving grace dispensed through Christ without relation to merit could save him from the eternal damnation that all men deserved. He also learned that God would save fewer men than he damned. Other Englishmen recognized the existence of human depravity, but allowed somewhat more efficacy to the church and to a man's own efforts in overcoming his depravity. The Puritan view would perhaps have been debilitating if it had left men not only helpless, but also without a hint of God's intention toward them. But Puritan theologians had taught men how to hope and strive for God's mercy, The theologians had examined the process of salvation and broken it down into a series of events occurring in successive stages within the human soul. By searching his own soul daily, a man might determine whether or not the crucial process was underway within him. The determination could never be made with absolute certainty. A man could easily err in his diagnosis nor could the process of salvation be completed before death. As long as a man breathed, depravity would drag him down. But if his internal history followed the accepted pattern, he had reason to hope that he was among the elect who would stand at the right hand of Christ on the last day. Back to me. There's a lot more to this, given the great depth of Puritan theology. Suffice it to say that at some point, the Holy Spirit would enter into the soul of a man, or as it turned out, more frequently, a woman, bringing saving grace. Further transformations would follow, including sanctification, which was a striving for righteous actions in daily life. The critical point for Puritans was that such a striving did not raise the odds of salvation, but it reflected an increased probability that one was, in fact, saved. All of this naturally meant that it was important to Puritans to see evidence of their own salvation and to see it in others. This idea would percolate in any number of ways, most famously for we moderns in the Puritan work ethic. Success in this world was evidence, even if not proof, of God's favor. So Puritans sought that success by working very hard at whatever it was they did. Their theology, tough as it was, led to extremely functional and constructive behavior, especially in a wilderness at the edge of a hostile continent. Of course, working hard to develop evidence of one's sainthood, or regeneration, as they would say, was very close, almost a split hair's breadth, from believing the work itself 
raised the odds of salvation. The belief in the covenant of grace thereby encroached dangerously on the belief in a covenant of works. It would become easy to accuse a diligent, hardworking Puritan of indulging in a covenant of works, a very serious charge. Separating the elect from the misguided, corrupt people trying to earn their way into heaven would be no easy matter and the source of painful controversy within Massachusetts Bay. There was another strain of covenant theory that shaped Puritan society, the idea that God entered into his covenant with nations. He had done so with Israel, and the idea emerged in 16th and 17th century England that he also had with that country. Evidence abounded. England had been spared the great deprivations of the religious wars on the continent. A divine wind had swept away the Spanish Armada, the purpose of which was to restore Catholicism in Elizabeth's realm. But as England turned away from robust Protestantism under James I and his son Charles I, everything had gotten worse. The economy turned sour, and epidemics killed tens of thousands. Some Puritans believed that England was in danger of breaking its covenant with God, as Israel had done, for being insufficiently righteous. This logic drove many of the Puritan expatriates to the point that they believed that the enforcement of God's law in their own community in Massachusetts was an essential requirement of their national covenant. This idea created tremendous pressure within Puritan Massachusetts to police its own society, all the way down to families. I expect to return to that theme in a future episode about Puritan attitudes toward sex and fun, which I hope is fun. The internal logic of Puritanism raised troubling questions about the Church of England and split Puritans between the majority who found a way to operate within the Church of England, even as it drifted back toward papist practices, and those who would separate from it. As even barely attentive listeners know, the pilgrims of Plymouth were separatists. We've touched on their thinking before, but it's useful to dig in a bit more now. Everybody in the 1600s, Catholic, Protestant, Puritan, and separatist, agreed that a person who called himself a Christian and deserted the Church of Christ was no Christian at all. Furthermore, They all agreed that a Christian could not participate in an assembly that falsely claimed it was a church of Christ. As Morgan put it, the first distinguishing mark of a separatist was his contention that the Church of England, which he had deserted, was no church of Christ. Within the framework of Puritan thinking, separatism flowed from a series of propositions that were true enough. For starters, all Protestants of the time agreed that the Church of Rome was the Church of the Antichrist. Under Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary for long-standing listeners, the Church of England had been for all purposes the Church of Rome. Then Mary died, and Elizabeth renounced Catholicism, and suddenly, by royal succession and edict, the Church of England was proclaimed the true Church of Christ. The question was whether a true Church of Christ could be made by mere bureaucratic fiat or even royal decree. How could it be, the separatists asked, that all the old school priests were suddenly acceptable? Damned good question, pun intended. As Morgan put it, 
neither clergy nor laity had made so much as a show of repentance for their years of service against Christ in his enemy's synagogue. Such a people were no church, but still the tools of the Antichrist. The separatists had two other potent arguments, at least according to their reasoning. The first was that the entire idea of a national church was unchristian and that a true church of Christ could be no larger than its congregation, for this was the only sort of church that Christ and his apostles had recognized. The only true churches were those which derived from voluntary covenants among visible saints in the Puritan formulation. Visible saints were worshipers of either gender who could, through narrative and behavior, show evidence that the Holy Spirit had entered them and they were progressing through the Puritan checklist of spiritual markers. This qualification, necessary to all Puritans, in the view of separatists, rendered the entire national hierarchy of bishops and archbishops not only superfluous, but anti-Christian. It was not only permissible, but indeed compulsory, to abandon the Church of England under this reasoning. The greatest defect of the Church of England, worse than the unrepentant clergy and the national hierarchy of bishops and such, was, in Morgan's words, its promiscuous membership. Not meant the way we would say it today. Now to Morgan, quote, A church must be formed out of visible saints, and it must sustain their sanctity by the exercise of discipline, admonishing members who fell into wickedness and excommunicating those who proved incorrigible. Other Puritans agreed that a church ought to exclude the wicked and discipline its members when they lapsed into wickedness. But the separatists made this exercise of discipline an essential mark of the church. Without it, no church could exist. In England, discipline was in the hands not of individual churches, but of ecclesiastical courts, which used it more as a source of income than as a means of maintaining purity of membership. As the separatist minister John Robinson put it, they played with excommunication like a child with a rattle, invoking it against good men for trivial offenses in order to collect a large fee for restoration to good standing, and letting adulterers go scot-free. An organization that treated discipline in this way could not be a church of Christ. Back to me. Indeed, the financial settlement of excommunication smacked of the very selling of indulgences that inspired the Protestant Reformation in the first place. The question then became, how do you know that somebody is regenerate enough to allow into your congregation. For separatists who were breaking the law in England and pursued more or less wherever they went in the old world, the burden of becoming a separatist was so high that it was assumed that nobody would become one insincerely. The sacrifice was, in effect, the test. The question would become more fraught, however, among the Puritans of the Bay Colony. They were practicing a sort of separatism light, enjoying the benefits of separatism by virtue of the vast expanse of the Atlantic. There were no new English bishops without formally renouncing the Church of England. 
Their congregations existed by covenant among the prospective worshipers, just as the separatists. But if the congregants were running no great risk in joining up, how did they assess their sincerity? This became especially fraught insofar as there were all sorts of potentially corrupting incentives in Massachusetts to attend church, whether one was regenerate or not. For starters, anybody who did not attend church was breaking the law and at great risk of expulsion, and only male church members, a much smaller class, had the right to vote. Well, I believe that will be all useful background. It'll enable us to plug in other stories over the next few weeks. Now to Roger Williams. Williams had at least known Winthrop and others who'd been organizing the migration of Puritan refugees to New England. No doubt Williams had considered migrating too, but in the late 1620s, he was somewhat protected from Bishop Laud's High Commission, which was then pursuing Puritan ministers. He had a post as a private minister to a wealthy family, and so for a while was not pursued. But that changed in 1630, when the Inquisitors went after even Puritan family ministers. In late November 1630, Williams seems to have learned by some means that the authorities were coming for him. Williams, his new wife Mary, and part of his library, made their way to the port of Bristol. There they booked passage for New England. They would sail on the Lion on the same voyage as John Winthrop's family, departing on December 1st, 1630, and arriving at Boston on February 5th, 1631. Winthrop would welcome him and refer to Williams in his diary as a godly minister. What Winthrop did not know was that at some point in the last year or so, Roger Williams had, at least in his heart, become a separatist, and not just a casual one. Williams, at most 28 years old, had arrived in the New World with only his own human capital, his wife, and a library of books. He had no money, no job, and no practical skill. He was therefore fortunate that the church in Boston was short a minister and honored him when its congregation unanimously offered Williams the position of teacher in the church, he met with the church leaders and asked them about their practices. Unfortunately for Williams, he did not like what he heard. He turned them down, saying, I durst not officiate to an unseparated people. Now to John Barry, quote, His response offended as much as astounded. The most powerful men in the plantation had unanimously invited him to join them to become one of them. He had not only rejected their offer and them, he had not only rebuffed them, he had found error in them and in their ways. They would not forget his answer, and it colored his relations with most of those in authority in Massachusetts for the rest of his life. Back to me. Williams did not stop there. He declared that the state, in this case, the governor and assistants of the Bay Colony, had no role or right in enforcing compliance with the so-called first table of the Ten Commandments. These are the commandments that regulate one's relationship with God, and in Anglican terms are, quoting here, I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods but me. You shall not make for yourself any idol. You shall not dishonor the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. 
The state, Williams said, had no authority to interpose itself in any way into an individual's relationship with God, which meant that there may be no enforcement of the first table. We don't, according to Barry, know precisely how Williams arrived at this argument. Barry speculates that there are several possible explanations. And since Williams' argument is now essentially holy writ among Americans, we still have laws that provide for enforcement of the last six commandments in one way or the other, but not the first four. It's hard for us to appreciate how revolutionary it was. Williams had launched nothing less than an attack on the jurisdiction not only of Massachusetts, but of England itself. And the fun was only just beginning. This is a good place to stop right now because there's no easy way to keep going on Williams without making the episode a lot longer. We're going to do that, just not in this episode. After all the theology, I don't think any of us can handle much more right now. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast an awesome rating on Apple and following me on Twitter and the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time. <laughs>